Hey there, my name is Ryan Hughley, and I'm lead pastor of Ridgeline Church in Salt Lake City, Utah. Thanks for checking out our podcast. Our goal is to help as many people as possible meet and mature in the Jesus of the Bible. For more information about our ministry, visit our website at ridgeline.church. If you enjoy the podcast, consider subscribing on the platform of your choice. Thanks again for listening, and I pray God's Spirit uses this message to revive you in a fresh way. Well, you know, from the earliest age, we are pretty much, I think, all prone to look for people with whom we can identify in some capacity. So we are looking for like people we either see some of ourselves in or people who possess particular attributes that we want to see grow in our lives. This could be like real people in our actual lives, but also characters that we read about in books or that we see in movies. And so as a kid, uh, not just when I, I mean, it's still pretty true for me now, but especially as a kid, I was all about heroes of any kind. To this day, I've got this real deep desire inside me to protect and to fix. And so while I sadly don't have superpowers, I identified with heroes who were able to save the day and to set things right, set right something that had gone wrong. But even more deeply than that, there have always been particular people in my life. Again, some real people in my life, some fictional characters in which I've seen particular character traits and attributes with which I deeply connected. And I'm sure you've had that experience too. And when that happens, there's something very validating about that. When we find someone else that we can identify with, it reminds us that we're not alone and that we're not the only one. And it can even give us an example that we can follow to further live up and into who God created us to be. And this is one of the many things that I love about the Bible, because the scriptures are filled with an exceptionally diverse cast of real-life characters. No two people in the Bible are exactly the same. And I think that that should remind us that God created and that God values and that God redeems and that God uses every kind of person imaginable. Now, our problem is we're prone to find the particular examples that we resonate with in scripture. And then we have this thing in us where we then reduce faithfulness to that singular example. So we find one type of person, and it's not just in scripture, but it certainly happens there too. This one type of person that we connect with, and then we sort of reduce everything down and go, this is, this is what the ultimate faithful person looks like. And one of the prime examples of this is the way that much of the Christian church at large has taught about what it looks like to faithfully embody our roles as men and women. And so what we've been prone to do is to find the examples in scripture that fit the confines of our own culture and our own comfort and typically our own personality, and then we reduce what it means to be a faithful man or woman to that. And I have certainly been guilty of this in my own life for sure. But because the Bible is so rich with diversity, I would argue that that when we do that, it is both an abuse of scripture And it is an abuse to the diversity with which God created us as his image bearers. And I would also argue that because history is undeniably patriarchal, this has had a disproportionate impact on women. 
For one thing, the amazing women that fill the pages of Scripture have not received the careful attention that they deserve. For another, we have largely defined biblical manhood and biblical womanhood in this very one-note and reductionistic manner. So we talk about what it means to be a, a godly woman in such a way that there's just like one kind of godly woman. And if you fit that, great. And if you don't, then you don't fit and there's something broken in you. And I just feel like the Bible poses a huge problem for that mindset because there is this amazing diversity of women that we see in the scriptures. There is more than just this sort of like tea parties and just being a mom, just being a wife, just doing Beth Moore studies that makes up what it means to be a biblical woman. And I love Beth Moore. I think she's a baller. I wouldn't fight her. I'm that afraid of her. I think she's that awesome. I'm just saying there's more than just that. In the Bible, we see female warriors and female leaders and females doing all kinds of amazing things beyond just the one or two things that more often than not tend to come up when the topic of being a, a biblical woman is addressed. And so what, what I want to do through this new series that I'm calling Fiercely Feminine is I want to give more attention to some of these amazing women while also highlighting their diverse expressions of strength. And my, my hope and prayer is that we, we will not only see things with which we can identify and resonate, but, but also areas that we can all grow as followers of Jesus in general. I do just want to acknowledge uh, the awkward obvious that on the day that I kicked off this series, we had zero female representation on our stage. And I, I choose to say that we were just giving Shanna a break in honor of Fiercely Feminine. Wasn't that nice of us? You're, I know, I know, we're sweet. Sorry about that. If you're here and you're a woman and play an instrument, we need you. Because Shanna's about what we got at this point. All right, so here's what I want to do. I'm trying to decide where to start because genuinely, when you really start to think about it, there is so many incredible women in scripture for us to talk about. And as I wrestled with where should we actually start this, I decided to start with probably the most significant woman in scripture. And so if you have a Bible with you this morning or a mobile app that you like to read on, do me a favor and turn to Luke's gospel which is the third uh, gospel in the New Testament, Luke's gospel. Uh, we're going to be in chapter one. And this morning, I want to talk about Mary, the mother of Jesus. And we're going to call this message, Mary, the Surrendered. So uh, I just want to jump in. I'll fill you in with some context uh, along the way, but let's jump right into her story. So look at Luke chapter one. We're going to pick up in verse 26. It starts like this. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a town in Galilee called Nazareth, to a virgin engaged to a man named Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. All right, so this gospel was written by a man named Luke, which is where it takes its name from. Uh, if you don't know that much about Luke, Luke was a doctor by trade. He was commissioned uh, by a wealthy man named Theophilus to write this account of what took place in Jesus' life. And he wrote both Luke and Acts. They are two volumes. Luke is the story of Jesus' earthly ministry. Acts is the story of the birth and early life of the New Testament church. Both of those were written by this guy, Luke. And in these opening verses, he sets the stage for what is to come. 
Now, if you don't know kind of what comes before this, uh, the beginning of Luke chapter one centers around uh, two people named Zachariah and Elizabeth. Now, Elizabeth was the wife of a Jewish priest whose name was Zachariah. And at the beginning of this chapter, we find the story of this same angel Gabriel visiting Zachariah to tell him that he and his wife are going to give birth to an important baby promised hundreds of years earlier in the book of Isaiah. And the only thing more surprising than an angel showing up to deliver this news to Zechariah is that Elizabeth, up to this point, had been completely unable to conceive children her entire life, and she and Zechariah were well beyond their childbearing years. Most scholars believe that they were somewhere upwards of 60 plus years old, potentially as old as in their 80s. And so verse 26 says that They were six months in at this point to Elizabeth's miraculous uh, pregnancy. And furthermore, this story is also set in this small town called Nazareth. Now, Nazareth at this time was a rural farming community that was really more of a village. It wasn't attached to any main road. It was a small, obscure, and out-of-the-way village. It was none of the things that you would expect from the town that the Savior of the world would be born in. And so I just, I think about it for a second. When, when any prestigious foreign dignitary visits the U.S., they tend to go to similar cities, right? They're going to go to Washington, D.C., maybe New York City, maybe L.A. They go to a major city that sits at the center of culture. You know where they don't go? Schofield, Utah. I don't know if you even know where Schofield, Utah is. I had to Google it. Uh, Only 24 people live in Schofield, Utah. It is the smallest town in our state, which doesn't mean there's anything wrong with it or anything bad about it. I'm just saying, like, if the Queen of England comes to visit the U.S., she's not like, hey, round it up, boys, we are going to Schofield. That's not on her list. And so this is exactly, it it doesn't fit the, the lens through which we perceive importance of this important place. It it doesn't fit in any of those standards that we would tend to have. But the truth is, the town's not the only thing that's surprising about this event. The angel Gabriel, who from what we know in scripture is the most important of all angels in heaven, visits this young girl named Mary. Now Luke is very intentional about conveying the fact that she was a virgin. And that fact actually tells us two things about her. Number one is the obvious. She had not had a sexual relationship with a man. And then number two, she was very young. It is so important. I'm thankful for art, but one of the unfortunate things about so much of our art that pertains to scripture is that we have, we have painted or portrayed these biblical characters in very unbiblical ways. So typically when you see a picture of Mary, number one, she's white, and Mary was not white. I just want to make sure we knew that, okay? Some people still think Jesus was white. He for sure wasn't. He's from the Middle East. So Mary was not white. And also, she always looks like she's like maybe in her mid-20s. And that is an important detail to get out of our heads. Because it says that she was engaged. The engagement or the betrothal age at this time was 13 or 14 years old. That's how old Mary is at the beginning of this story. So my my daughter, Ava, who many of you know, she turns 13 tomorrow. Yeah, that'll put some fire in your bones, right? Like that radically alters the way you read this story. So when you picture Mary, as we make our way through this story, I want you to picture like a brown Ava, 
from the Middle East, okay? Because that's who Mary was. She's not this like mid-20s riding on a donkey, very mature young woman. She's not that. She is two clicks from a child, which I think very much informs and actually makes the demonstration of faith that we see in her so much more impactful. So that's who this Mary is. And so the question is, why does the highest ranking angel in heaven visit such a young woman living in a, seem, living in a seemingly insignificant town? And we come to find this in verse 28. It says, and the angel came to her and said, greetings, favored woman, the Lord is with you. But she was deeply troubled by this statement, wondering what kind of greeting this could be. Now, the fact that Mary is deeply troubled here uh, when Gabriel greets her is not uncommon, right? Almost every single encounter between a human and an angel in scripture is met with tremendous fear. In fact, even uh, Zechariah, who earlier in in, uh, Luke chapter one meets Gabriel as well, he was filled with fear. But what's different about what causes the fear is the text doesn't say anything about the appearance of Gabriel being the source of Mary's fear. Verse 29 says, it was the content of what he said that troubled Mary. In verse 28, Gabriel says, greetings, favored woman, the Lord is with you. Now, what troubled Mary about this greeting is that that made no sense to her. Because nothing about Mary pointed to her being favored by God. This is no offense to her, but at this point, like, she's just nobody. Living in this seemingly nothing town. I mean, at least Zechariah, at the beginning of Luke chapter 1, at least he's a priest, right? Like, an angel visiting a priest, not that surprising. But she's just a girl. She's nobody from nowhere. And Zechariah was in the temple, at least, just outside the Holy of Holies. Like, if I had some aspiration to see an angel in my life, I'm going to post up outside the Holy of Holies. Because it seems like, that seems like maybe an angel shows up there. Not in whatever tiny residence this young girl would have been living. And so Mary's confused because she lives away from the crowds. She lives away from culture. She lives away from everything that you would conclude an announcement of this magnitude would warrant. And so Mary wonders, like, what what does this mean? And why on earth is this angel here to see me? And Gabriel does not leave her in suspense, but explains how she's been favored by God. Look at verse 30. Then the angel told her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Now, listen, you will conceive and give birth to a son and you will name him Jesus. He will be called great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom will have no end. Now these words do not hold the same significance for us that they would have held for Mary. Because as Gabriel is speaking to her, what what Mary is hearing was that God was about to fulfill what he had promised about 400 years earlier in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. Look at this with me. Isaiah said, For a child will be born for us, a son will be given to us, and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. The dominion 
will be vast and its prosperity will never end. He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and sustain it with justice and righteousness from now on and forever. The zeal of the Lord of armies will accomplish this. So when Mary hears what Gabriel says to her, she immediately starts to make connections. Oh my gosh, this is what we've been hearing about. This is what we've been waiting for for hundreds of years now. So she's hearing that God has chosen to use her, a 13 or 14-year-old young woman living in the middle of nowhere, to fulfill his promise to send the Messiah, Jesus, into the world. So I think it's like totally fair that that she would have a few follow-up questions because that's like a super weird Tuesday. And so look at at her question, look at verse 34. Mary asked the angel, "How, how can this be since I have not had sexual relations with a man? The angel replied to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. And consider your relative Elizabeth. Even she has conceived a son in her, whole, in her old age. Poor Elizabeth, man. The only thing the Bible ever emphasizes about her is how old she is. It's over and she's Elizabeth, she's old, like real old. It's the only as poor woman. She's probably amazing. And this is the sixth month for her uh, who was called childless. For nothing, I love this part, for nothing will be impossible with God. So Mary asks here a very fair question. And I want you to notice in her question, she's not doubting that God can do what he said he's going to do. In fact, I don't even think she's doubting that he is going to do what he's promised. She just wants a little bit more detail, understandably so, surrounding how. And so Gabriel says the Holy Spirit would supernaturally conceive this baby inside of her womb. And because this is so abnormal, meaning uh, virgins don't spontaneously become pregnant, and if you don't understand that, I don't have time to break that down for you this morning, but ask your parents when you get home. And so Gabriel gives her a sign of God's power to do this by saying that her relative Elizabeth, whom she knew had been barren and unable to conceive children, was already six months pregnant despite the fact that she was over 60 years old. He then announces, uh, closes his announcement with this amazing proclamation of God's power saying, nothing will be impossible with God. And the truth is, belief that nothing is impossible for God sits as the bedrock of our faith. If we believe that God is bound by all the same limitations that we are, we're going to struggle with a great many claims in Scripture. And the truth is, there have been many people historically that have very much struggled with these claims. So think about the example of Thomas Jefferson, one of our country's founding fathers that so many hold up as an example of how all of our founders were faithful and devout Christians. You know, that Jefferson rejected the notion that nothing was impossible for God, and he literally took a pair of scissors and he cut out all the parts of his Bible that contained anything supernatural, including this text. He did not believe that anything was possible with God, and many of us struggle to believe this as well. And this is why the virgin birth is a stumbling block for so many. Many people reject it altogether, or just as dangerous, treat it as though it doesn't matter. And the question has been posed, do we really lose anything if we just choose not to believe in the virgin birth? And and I would say, I think we have to say, yes, we do. Number one, we lose the Bible. 
Because three times the text claims that Mary was a virgin, which again, does not mean she was just young. It means exactly what you think it means to be a virgin. And then number two, we lose the divinity of Jesus, which seems like a pretty big deal to me. Because in verse 35, Gabriel makes it clear that the virgin birth is the primary factor pointing to Jesus' holiness. If he had an earthly biological father, he would not be the son of God that verse 37 claims he is. So because Gabriel knows what an unbelievable announcement this is, he roots the announcement in the infinite power of God, saying nothing will be impossible with God. And so here's the thing. The one thing that I find harder to believe than what Gabriel claims is actually the way that Mary responds to it as a 13, 14-year-old girl. Because look at verse 38. She says, See, I am the Lord's servant. May it happen to me as you have said. And then the angel left her. That is the most staggering demonstration of surrender. By the way, from a teenage girl. Like, do you remember being 13 or 14 years old? Like, when I was 13, I still thought there was at least a slight possibility I could actually become a Jedi. (laughs) And don't hear me wrong. It's not that I believed that, like, maybe there was a possibility that a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, Jedis could have existed. I thought if I focused hard enough, I could maybe figure out the Force. I also love robes, so I'm totally down with the dress code, and I think swords are dope. So, all that to say, like, that's what I was working with when I was 13 or 14 years old. I did not have a fraction of the spiritual maturity that Mary displays here. Like, just consider this again. An angel appears to her out of nowhere, talks to her, and tells her that she's going to conceive and give birth to the Messiah through the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit. And her response to that is like, I think I've finally lost my mind. Her response is, I'm the Lord's servant. May it happen to me as you have said. Like if, if, if you didn't know about this story, and I just put Zechariah, a 60-year-old priest, next to Mary a 14-year-old girl, and I asked you, which one do you think is going to be the example of greater faith and surrender? My guess is 10 out of 10 are going to choose Zachariah. He's just got like a Dumbledore vibe about him. Like there's something about him that you just go, well, yeah, I mean, this guy's going to be amazing, right? Like he's this aged, faithful priest. But the truth is, he is shamed by the example of this amazing young woman who is barely older than my own daughter. And this one statement from her, this one statement sums up a few very profound demonstrations of surrender that we see in her life. The first is this, Mary chose God's approval over others, which is no small thing, especially at 13, 14. Mary chose God's approval over others. Now consider this. What do you think happened when an unmarried, preteen, small-town girl started to show signs of being pregnant? Uh, the exact same thing that would happen today. 
She would have been the center of speculation and judgment. And, and I mean, what was she going to do? Tell people the Holy Spirit put the Messiah inside of her? That would not have gone great. And so she's, that's what she's left with. Nobody is going to believe her. And so if they were not accusing her of promiscuity to her face, they certainly would have been whispering about it behind her back. But Mary demonstrated her submission to God by resting in his approval rather than the approval of those around her. And I think this is such a, a, a critical thing for us to see because sometimes faithfulness to God means forfeiting the approval of others. It just does. The, the idea that we can follow the way of Jesus in this world and everyone will approve of all of that is just naive. Because Jesus came bringing a different kingdom than the kingdom that sits superior over this world. And so sometimes faithfulness to God means forfeiting the approval of others. I, I don't think anyone would disagree with this, but the popularity of walking with Jesus is like plummeting in our culture. And you know what I think is so hard about following Jesus in our culture, current cultural climate, is that faithfulness to Jesus seems to put us in the middle of a culture in which we're going to take flack from two sides. On, on the one hand, we have the, the obvious side, I think, which is this openly, admittedly unbelieving culture that denies the Jesus of the Bible and any claim to authority that he makes. And so following Jesus is obviously not going to be popular with this side. But right now, we also have this real weird thing on the other side where we have this strange distortion of Christianity that is this growing movement of Christian nationalism and all of its expressions. And this side talks far more about guns and freedom and America first than they do about the very words of Jesus surrounding things like love, compassion, and justice. And that's a problem. And so the fact is, truly walking with Jesus in our culture means living in the middle and letting the stones come from both sides. But if a 14-year-old young woman can put her entire reputation and her entire future on the line in surrender to God, so can we. To surrender means choosing his approval, God's approval over all others. But here's another sign of her surrender. Secondly, Mary died to her need for all the details. And this one's real hard for us. Mary died to her need for all the details. Even after Gabriel's explanation, you have to think that Mary was confused and had more questions, right? Like he, he responds to her, but she had, and, and we actually know from reading the rest of Mary's story, unlike what can be taught in some streams of the church, Mary was not infallible. She was not perfect. She was very human. And she is uh, regularly confused with what is happening in her son's life and what God's purpose for him is throughout this gospel. But so we know for a fact that she had some questions after hearing about all of this, but she doesn't drone on and on desperate for more details. She surrenders to what God has said and she chooses to trust him. And I think that that teaches us an uncomfortable lesson. Do you know that God will never give you enough details to diminish your need to depend on him? 
Oh, and that sucks, doesn't it? God's never going to give you enough details to diminish your need to depend on him. And so maybe you're in a season right now that you do not understand. And you do not understand how, how God could be in control of this season. Maybe you, you, you don't understand you don't see how this season or a circumstance that is so painful, that is so difficult or confusing, could possibly be pieced together by God for your good. And so maybe your constant prayer is, God, tell me why. Give me the details. And I, I confess, man, I, I don't know everything God's doing in your life. I certainly don't understand everything God's doing in mine. But I do know at least one thing. God's intent is always to draw us into deeper dependence on him. And so one of the reasons that God withholds detail at time is so that we won't cease to need him. And so it's hard and it's uncomfortable, but the question is, will you surrender? To surrender means to die to your need for all the details. And then lastly, Mary believed that nothing was impossible for God. Mary believed nothing was impossible for God. What we see in Mary may just be, I would argue, the ultimate display of trust that we find in all of Scripture. Mary just simply took God at his word and trusted that he would do what he promised. And, and I confess, I often lack this level of trust. And I think you probably do too. And, and, and I think... I'm not just talking about the, like, the life-altering things like we see in Mary that we tend to equate with faith. I'm talking about just the everyday nitty-gritty stuff. Like maybe life feels so crushing right now that you're not sure you can keep going. Maybe your faith has started to show cracks and you're beginning to wrestle for maybe even the first time in your life some very deep doubts. Maybe you feel isolated and you're not sure that genuine friendship even exists for you. I mean, maybe you're just so worn out, you couldn't, have, couldn't even get out of bed and, and come to church this morning, and so you're home watching online. If any of that resonates with you, I want you to listen. Much, much, much of what Christ calls us to is very difficult. But I want you to note this. Behind every difficult obedience is God inviting you to believe him. And oftentimes, belief doesn't look like bravely staring down an army of opposition or being entrusted with the responsibility of bringing the Messiah into the world. Oftentimes, it just looks like believing that he can get you through the day. And so where do you need to trust God's power? Where do you need to trust God to provide for a specific need in your life or trust that God is sufficient for you and will sustain you through a particular difficulty? It might feel impossible, but if what Gabriel said is true, nothing will be impossible with him. And I want you to know, even the smallest amount of faith is enough for Jesus. Surrender means trusting that nothing is impossible with God. So as we close this morning, I think it's worth considering, what is it that keeps us from living surrendered to Jesus? That's the question I sort of woke up thinking about this morning. And as I reflected and prayed on that, I, I was convicted about how 
consistently fear is the enemy of surrender in my own heart. Fear of having to lose control and relinquish control to God, even though control is just an absolute myth in our lives. We still fight so hard to be in control of everything. And so I have this fear of letting go of control. We have a fear of surrendering the approval of others, fear of surrendering our comfort that often accompanies following Jesus. So the truth is fear is a near constant driver and presence in every single human heart, which is probably why God so frequently calls us out of fear and into trusting faith in scripture. It's the most consistent command in the Bible. Fear not, fear not, fear not. Do you know why that's there so frequently? Because so is fear. And so here's the big idea I want to leave us with this morning. Surrender puts feet to our faith. Surrender puts, fear, puts feet to our faith. It's easy to say, oh, I have faith in Jesus. I love Jesus. I believe in Jesus. Surrender puts feet to that claim. Mary didn't allow her fear to stand in the way of following God. And make no mistake, she was afraid when Gabriel greeted her, and the text doesn't tell us, but I think we can probably safely assume Mary continued to feel fear through this process. But rather than bow to that fear and forfeit what God wanted to do in and through her, she surrendered in faith. And so I I don't know about you, but I, for the first time in my life, really want to be like a 14-year-old girl. I've never thought that. I've never said that before. But as I sit in this story, I go, God, I just want to be like this. I want to trust God this much. I want to live with this faith. And that requires surrender. So the question is, where is God inviting you to surrender today? Will you bow your head with me? Father, you are a good and kind and all-knowing God. And much of what you call us to is difficult. Granted, you're not calling any of us to do anything like what you were calling Mary to do. But the things that you have called us to, the various areas of obedience and trust, are difficult for us. And to to lay down our need to try to be our own kings and queens, to be our own gods, and to run our own lives, and, and to live fully surrendered to you in all things is infinitely difficult. And so I pray that you would do the work in our hearts necessary to help us to live more and more surrendered to you. And I, I know that there might be some here or some listening that need to surrender to you for the first time. And so, Lord, if there's anyone listening that, that has not given their life to you, has not put their faith in Jesus, I pray that you would awaken their heart to faith this morning and that they would surrender to him and to follow him and to experience his love and his grace and his mercy even now for the first time. And Lord, for those of us who have been following you for any amount of time, you, you present us with these probably minute by minute, hour by hour, certainly day by day opportunities to surrender to you. And so Holy Spirit, I just thank you for the way that that you 
work in each and every heart. And so I, I don't know what the application of surrender looks like for all of us, but you do. And so I, I pray right now that you would bring clarity in every heart as to how you would have them to surrender to you, to trust you, to die to the need for all the details, to believe that nothing is impossible for you. God, would you ignite that faith and that trust and that surrender in all of us? We know you can because nothing's impossible with you. And so we ask that you would in Jesus' name and everyone said, amen.